Thank you for joining me for a special bonus episode of Once Upon a Crime. As you know, this month's series is titled Stranger Than Fiction, and it details true crime cases that inspired films. So imagine my delight when I discovered one of my favorite true crime authors had a new book being published this month that is also dedicated to this topic. Author Harold Schechter's new book, Ripped from the Headlines, The Shocking True Stories Behind the Movie's Most Memorable Crimes, is an anthology of 40 true crime cases and the movies they inspired. I was able to get a hold of a copy before it was released and have used some portions of it for the episodes I covered this month. The stories of Belva Gartner and Beulah Anand and Chicago, and another case I'll be sharing with you next week for the last chapter of Stranger Than Fiction. I was able to speak to Harold Schechter about his new book and also to talk true crime with him. You're probably familiar with some of his books, I interviewed him when his book, Hell's Princess, The Mystery of Bell Gunness, Butcher of Men, was released in 2018. But he has many other books, including other anthologies like True Crime, an American Anthology, and the A to Z Encyclopedia of Serial Killers, as well as detailed biographies of serial killers Ed Gein, Carl Panzram, Jesse Pomeroy, Albert Fish, and others. I've been a big fan of Harold's books for some time, so I was excited to be able to talk with him once again and to be able to bring the conversation I had with him to you as a special bonus episode. I hope you enjoy it. I'd like to welcome my guest, author Harold Schechter, and it's great to have you here, Harold. I really appreciate you coming on today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. Great. So I was just kind of uh, perusing your catalog of books, and I know you have quite a catalog at this point. Um, I think that mm-hmm. many many of the listeners are most familiar with the uh, well-researched and detailed books on some of the known serial killers that you've covered, like mm-hmm. Ed Gein and Albert Fish and Bell Gunness. But you've also mm-hmm. written so many other types of books on crime and criminals. Um, I was just um, looking through some of those so, like, reference-type books, you have uh, A to Z of serial killers and um, those type of things. And even I just noticed some poetry and fiction, which I didn't know. And I'm so excited to dive into those. I was like, oh, my gosh, how does he get so many of these books done? I tell people I'm a human dynamo between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. Uh, and then I have <laughs> the rest of the day to myself. Because my theory is if you write a little every day, even if you set your sights on writing a page a day, write every day at the end of the year you have a book <laughs> a 350 page book so yeah i mean i i've been basically publishing a book once a year anyway um like now for over 40 years you know i am not somebody who writes very easily it takes me a long time sometimes it'll take me half a day to write a paragraph. Mm -hmm. And it's not even a matter of discipline. You know, if you start doing it and do it long enough, it becomes a habit. And like any other habit, if you don't do it, you get very anxious. Uh, So uh, it makes it easy to do a little writing every day. So yeah, that's my secret. I I don't know if you know, I, I actually, my day job for 42 years, I'm now recently retired, was a professor of American literature at uh, Queens College, City University of New York. 
Uh, and part of the reason I entered academia was because uh, I knew it would give me time to do a little writing uh, on a daily basis. And I would tell my students who were aspiring writers what I have just told your listeners, <laughs> that if you you know, write even a page a day, at the end of the year, you have a book. Yeah, because you figure, well, what else are you going to be doing, right? Besides, you know, working and <laughs> seeing students yeah. and everything else. You know, I'm sure you had to do a lot of reading as well. You've done a lot of research. So it's not just kind of sitting in front yes. of a computer and, you know, coming up with a story. There's like a ton of research that goes into it. I was always uh, tried to be researching one book while I was writing another. Mm-hmm. So I would just go from one project to the next. But as I said, I mean, basically, you know, my work day in terms of writing uh, would always be over by lunch. You know, now that I'm retired, it affords me uh, a lot of opportunity in the afternoons um, to play the, well, now I'm halfway through The Last of Us 2. Before that, I was doing Red Dead Redemption 2 and uh, Wolfenstein 2. In other words, I got a PlayStation. (laughs) So you actually have something else to do besides reading and writing. Yeah, exactly. Killing zombies. So it kind of takes the edge off of the, all the writing, right? So um, you got to have right. a hobby. But um, yep. but yeah, so this one is a little bit different, though, um, than some of the others that you've done. And it's called uh, Rip from the Headlines. And I feel mm-hmm. like it's a completely new way to look at true crime cases, some that people may have heard of and others that maybe they haven't. So tell mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about about it um, about the book and how you decided to make this you know one of your projects. Rip from the headlines uh, is a book that discusses forty movies from classic films uh, like um, Alfred Hitchcock's well not only Psycho but uh, Rope and Frenzy, uh, Fritz Lang's M, um, Otto Preminger's Anatomy of a Murder. Frank Capra's Arsenic and Old Lace, two grade Z cult films like Toby Hooper's Eaten Alive yeah. um, and uh, Wes Craven's The Hills Have Eyes, although I'd rank that above grade Z. So it's about 40 fictional films that many people don't realize were inspired by true crimes. You know, nowadays, well, I was going to say when you go to the movies, we can't go to the movies now. Um, But up until recently, when you went to the movies, it was very common to see a film begin with a title card saying based on true events or something along those lines. Um, Back in the old days, that wasn't that common. In fact, it was very rare. In fact, it was much more common that a film would contain a disclaimer saying you know, the events and characters in this film are all fictional and any resemblance to actual people, you know, is a coincidence. Um, but back then, back in the old days, uh, uh, screenwriters also turned to sensational crime stories uh, as the inspiration for their screenplays. So my book examines 40 films and then discusses the true life crimes, not all of them are murders, most of them are murders, that inspired the films. I I got into it in one sense when I first began writing true crime, because years ago, probably like 30 years ago now, hard as that is for me to believe, um, I was researching a book about movie special effects. 
This was pre-CGI. And in researching the chapter on horror effects, uh, I came across what was a surprising fact to me and then relatively little known fact that both uh, Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I regarded as the two most terrifying horror films ever made, Mm -hmm. um, were both inspired by a real case, that of Ed Gein. I was not aware of that. And I researched that case, you know, went to Plainfield. Anyway, that became uh, the Gein story, became the basis for my first uh, true crime book, Deviant. Um, But one of the things that interested me then and now was how actual crimes and the details of actual crimes get transformed into these narrative entertainments. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, as a professor of American literature, I was aware that some classic novels like Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy were based or inspired by true crimes. So all those interests, uh, my longtime interest in movies, because I've, I've done other writing about movies, uh, my interest in novels based on true crime, uh, my interest in general in how actual crime is mythologized, really, the way the Gein story has been mythologized. You know, all those led finally to my doing this book. I was, I was going to ask you if there was uh, one or two that inspired you to start looking at, you know, how it's connected. It's funny because um, I just rewatched Psycho last night. It just happened to be mm-hmm. on. And I just love that. Still love that movie so much. It's just so it's, it's yeah. so well done. Was there some some of the movies or cases that you researched for your book that you found maybe the most interesting or the ones that really drew you into being motivated to do this project, this book? The ones that I have for a long time been most interested in, besides Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And, you know, then later on, um, when I did my Ed Gein book, Silence of the Lambs, had not yet come out. You know, that, as I'm sure you know, the Buffalo Bill character in there was also partly inspired by the Gein case. Right. Uh, but also, um, I've been interested in and have done some writing, for example, about the so-called double indemnity murder, which was based on, again, that's an example of a film based on a novel by the great noir writer, James M. Kane that was inspired by a real-life case. And that case was the case of... Um, a, a queen's house, an adulterous queen's housewife named Ruth Snyder, uh, who in 1927 conspired with her mousy lover, Judd, a corset salesman named Judd Gray, to murder her husband. And then they tried to make it look like there'd been a housebreaking and a robbery. They thought they had committed this perfect crime. In fact, it was so bungled they were arrested within a couple of days. And it became one of the great sensational cases of the 1920s, mm-hmm. along with uh, the Leopold and Loeb case and one other case. But I've been very, very fascinated by that case, partly because of the question of why it did become such a nationwide sensation. You know, the crime itself compared to other horrendous... You know, if you read the newspapers, the tabloids of the 1920s, you know, which I've done a lot of reading in, almost every day, without exaggeration, there would be some horrible crime. So, you know, the actual murder of Snyder's husband as a homicide was not that horrendous compared Mm -hmm. to some of the other things you read about. And yet, you know, it struck this, this chord in the American public 
for reasons I think having to do with the way Ruth Snyder was seen as personifying this threat, you know, to the traditional household Mm -hmm. during the, you know, ninth, the jazz age, you know, she became to be seen as, you know, like this nightmare version of the flapper. (laughs) Um, So, you know, so that, you know, that always interested me about the case. You know, if I may, it's not exactly a digression, but um, I have another book coming out next spring about a crime that happened exactly at the same time that the Snyder Gray case happened. Um, which was something called the Bath School Disaster. The spring, do you know about it? Yes, I've heard. Yeah, I've heard, you've heard about it. it. Must have been in a podcast somewhere. Yeah, I mean, most people don't know about no, it. No, they don't. Um, was, yeah, the worst school massacre in U.S. history, and the worst case of domestic terrorism before Timothy McVeigh. A small town in Michigan, not far from Lansing, called Bath. Uh, where one member of the community, a respected member of the community, who had descended into madness, um, rigged up the local public school and um, detonated it on the last day of class and killed 38 children and a bunch of teachers. Uh, He actually intended to blow up the whole school, which would have killed essentially every child in the community. But, you know, this horrendous, horrendous uh, school massacre. And yet, you know, even though it made the front pages of newspapers across the country for a few days, it was very, very quickly forgotten by the country at large. Uh, And yet, you know, the Ruth Snyder Judd Gray case where they, you know, these two bumbling lovers murdered her husband, you know, that became this incredible sensation that was in the paper for months. So that's that's an issue that that interests me, and, and as I said, so that's one of the cases mm-hmm. that I explore, and, and again, how that was transformed into the great Billy Wilder movie, Double Indemnity, which is generally considered the first film noir. Right, and that was one of the things that I, I also found in the stories in your book or that you covered was there was so many. Um, of these movies that were made that were inspired by these crime stories are made about these crimes and they're not new movies. So there was a lot of, of mm-hmm. these being made in like, looked like the thirties, the forties, the fifties, mm-hmm. and even in the 1920s. So mm-hmm. that was a little surprising to me. Was that surprising to you at all? Well, as I said, I mean, it, it uh, you know, I was surprised to discover that some movies that I've always loved had a, a factual basis, mm-hmm. like arsenic and old lace, you know, this classic comedy, um, which was inspired by the case of this Connecticut woman, Amy Gilligan Archer, or, or Gilligan, one of them, I always forget, um, you know, who ran a who ran a, an old age home and ended up poisoning dozens of, you know, the inmates uh, in the early 20th century. Um, you know, a female serial poisoner, female serial killer, uh, and then her story got you know transformed into this comedy. So so on that in that sense, I was surprised to discover that some movies had a factual basis or inspired by real life crimes. On the other hand, it didn't surprise me that uh, you know that wasn't um, announced at the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because the Hollywood studio system back then. You had all these writers on payroll, and they were always going through the papers looking for stories that might, again, kickstart some screenplay for them. 
so in that sense, I wasn't surprised that, uh, you know, they would come upon some story and then use it as the basis for their own screenplays. Yeah. So one of the things that you brought up in the book that I didn't know a whole lot about, um, and I even kind of looked it up further, was you talked about the pre-Hayes era movies. And as I mm, understand yeah. it, you know, as my limited understanding of it, it was a time before there was a strict code on the kind of topics or themes that were allowed in the movie. So they weren't like basically prohibiting those things. So they got away with a little mm-hmm. bit more for a, a short amount of time, it sounds like. I guess we might be a little surprised at what we find included in some of those movies that were before the mid-1930s. Um, and one of them that mm-hmm. you, you uh, described in the book was the movie Five Star Final. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had yeah. only heard about, I think this is the only, no, one other time maybe I heard about this case was the Hell the, Mills uh, murder. Hall, Hall Mills, Hall Mills murder. murder. Yeah. yeah, and that was in 1922. Yeah. Um, and yeah. like I said, I'm surprised. I hadn't heard much um, about it at all, really. And it seems like you would have because, I mean, if you think about what's what you could put in a movie, if you're talking about this case, I mean, there's a murder, of course, there's a sex scandal, there's a mystery. Mm-hmm. So did mm-hmm. you know much about this case before you researched your book? Yeah, I, I did know. I did know a fair amount about it because years ago, there was a very good book written about it by famous lawyer, William Kunstler, uh, who you know became very famous in the 1960s. He defended the Chicago 7, Abby Hoffman and that crew. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was sort of a radical lawyer. And he did a very good book on the Hall Mills case. The Hall Mills case was the other one I alluded to. I mean, there were three great murder trial sensations of the 1920s. Uh, and each one at the time, you know, was regarded as the trial of the century, the mm-hmm. crime of the century. Uh, the first was the case of the two college-age thrill killers, mm-hmm. Leopold and Loeb, right. in 1924. And uh, that's also in the book. I mean, that that case, you know, which is two very, very brilliant, very wealthy uh, young college-age uh, guys decided they were Nietzsche and Superman, and were going to prove it by committing, the, again, the perfect crime. And they abducted and murdered uh, a 14-year-old boy named Bobby Franks, who was actually the cousin, uh, I think, of uh, Dickie Loeb. You know, that, that became this hugely sensational case. They were defended by at their sentencing uh, trial by Clarence Darrow, you know, the great, you know, great defender. Right. Um, and and that, that case became the basis of uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope and another film called Compulsion, which was based on a best-selling book. Uh, the other sensational case was the one I spoke about before, the Ruth Snyder Dread Grade, uh, double indemnity murder. And the third one, which hasn't, you know, achieved the kind of lasting notoriety uh, that the other two have, was the Hall Mills murder case in which this uh, reverend, whose name was Hall, and his choir girl mistress, um, a young woman named Mills, their their bodies were found executed in a New Brunswick, New Jersey apple orchard. And, and, and the connection to Five Star Final is that Five Star Final is about uh, a tabloid newspaper that resurrects an old murder case that had been tried and resolved years before in order to generate more sales and more publicity. And uh, it ends up destroying the lives of the people who were originally involved in the case. 
and who had been, you know, who had basically been forgotten and, you know, were leading perfectly normal lives. And, uh, you know, that's what happened with the whole Mills murder case. There was you know, was investigated and dropped. And then about four years later, I think it was 1926, William Randolph Hearst, you know, in order to boost circulation of his tabloid, resurrected the case. And it led to this very, very sensational trial in which Hall's wife and brothers uh, were put on trial for the murder, although ultimately they they were acquitted. So, you know, a, a good deal of mystery continues to surround the case so but what you were saying about the uh, pre what they now call pre-code movies mm-hmm. yeah i mean up until um the hayes censorship code went into effect in the 1930s uh, you know some of those pre-code movies were very very sexually graphic in terms of the stories they told uh, the language they used you know look at some of them now you know they still have the power you know, to be very shockingly frank, which is why, you know, there was a, a, a big campaign by moral watchdogs and religious leaders to uh, establish some kind of censorship of the movies. I mean, the movie industry was really, you know, being threatened at that point. Right. And so as a, as a way of self-preservation, they, uh, you know, created this uh, office and, you know, remained in effect really to the 1960s. It doesn't matter what comes out. At some point, somebody's going to take some uh, offense by it, <laughs> whether it's movies or video games, you know, music. Oh, yeah. It's At some point, somebody's yeah. going to want to slap a label on it. No, oh, that's explicit. We got to be careful. It happened in the 1950s with comic books. Uh, oh. You know, there was this great crusade against comic books that always put the comic book industry out of business. And the comic book industry also had to adopt a code. You know, when I was growing up, every comic book, had a, a little stamp on the cover, you know, mm. that it was approved by this comic code authority. Um, there was a very famous book in the 1950s called Seduction of the Innocent, you know, which argued that comic books were the leading cause of juvenile delinquency. Juvenile delinquency, you know, was a big social fear at that time. So, yes, uh, you're right. I mean, every time I've actually written a book about that, it's a, a book called Savage Pastimes, A Cultural History of Violent Entertainment, which is about how every time a new form of popular entertainment is introduced, um, you know, going back to the 19th century, uh, dime novels, and right. then radio and comic books and TV and rock and roll and now video games. You know, you always have the same pattern. You know, there are always people who claim, you know, that it's destroying the morals of the young. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, then that blows over. And you know, I'm sure in, let's say, another decade or two decades, whatever, you know, when uh, people will be playing totally virtual reality mm. kind of games in which you actually feel the zombie's blood splatter on your face after you shoot it. You know, how far is too far? Yeah. <laughs> They'll yeah. say, well, yeah. no, no, people are going to be saying, well, whatever happened to those good old innocent games of my youth, like Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which was a scandal, yeah. you know, back in the day. So, yeah. you know, you know yeah. and I think we, yeah. we're, we're actually still having, having that debate now. I mean, I hear this with the whole true crime genre that's now kind of exploded into, you know, shows and, podcasts mm-hmm. and, and every other kind of offering, wh- whether or not this is, you know, sensationalizing, you know, violence and and, mm-hmm. and, and, and using it as entertainment and, and is that, you know, moral or not? Yeah. And we, we have these debates. Well, 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 you know, I mean, there's no, there's no point in ignoring the fact that it is sensational and it is entertainment. Right. You know, the question becomes, you know, why people crave, 
you know, that kind of sensational entertainment. Uh, you know, the whole point is people, and, and and that's always been the case. You know, it's not like true crime. Again, it's now achieved a kind of cultural prominence that it hasn't quite had before. Um, but, I mean, the genre itself goes back literally to the beginning of the printing press. Actually, it goes back before the invention of the printing press. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, back in the, you know, among pre-literate societies, people would, every time there was a sensational murder, it would be turned into a ballad. Uh, people would, you know, rhyme about it, sing about it. I mean, I remember years ago reading the Wikipedia entry on true crime and, and the person who created it, you know, said it began with Truman Capote's In Cold Blood which was off by like <laughs> 600 years. Um, anyway, you know, uh, one of the best-selling books in Shakespeare's time was a true crime book. So oh, the point gonna... being, people have always had an appetite, you know, for that kind of material. And one could argue, as I would, that it's actually has a, a, an important social function in that it permits law-abiding, you know, morally upright citizens to safely indulge their less savory appetites, you know, because, you know, we're a violent species. Mm -hmm. Uh, The philosopher William James uh, called it the carnivore within, Hmm. you know. Um, So, you know, that carnivore within needs some red meat. And, uh, you know, back in the not, well, my book, Savage Pastimes, is partly about how popular culture in the old days was way more violent than it is now. Yeah. You know, I was just reading true, you know, Charles Portis's great novel, True Grit, you know, it begins with a, a triple hanging in, in Fort Smith, Arkansas, you know, hangings until very, very recently, you know, were a big form of popular entertainment. And, uh, you know, before that, all kinds. Anyway, the point is people crave violent entertainment, obviously. Right. Uh, true crime is part of that. And, you know, there's no no point in denying that it is entertainment. So. Yeah. Speaking of, there was one other chapter in your book that I was really interested in, and you were talking about the 1936 film Fury, you said at the end, so it's very it's very kind of loosely based. I think basically just the ending of the movie um, connects to the 1933 Brooke Hart kidnapping case. And the reason why I was so interested in that, one of the reasons was because it happened right here in my hometown where I'm at now, San Jose, California. Um, and that uh-huh. was, yeah, so that's part of our history, you know, still people talk uh-huh. about that. Um, as a matter of fact, I was oh. just looking for a copy of Harry Farrell's books with Justice, which I used to have. But I must have gave hmm. it away at some point, and now it's out of print, really hard to find. Yeah. Um, and so I've been like, you know, asking everybody to check their shelves. I'm, I'm sure people here in San Jose have to have it, but I have not been able to get my hands on a copy. You know, I have a little sidebar afterwards. There's a 1951 movie called Try and Get Me um, that really sticks much closer to the facts of that case. Okay. Uh, it's a really, really powerful film. You know, kind of a low budget black and white movie um but it's you know it's very 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 powerful so if you're interested in in the uh, burkhart kidnapping um i would you know also highly recommend uh the film try and get me so like what you were just saying about we have this violent nature i mean this is exactly what Uh happened in this burkhart case correct i mean regular normal citizens basically Uh you know uh, stormed the jail oh, yeah. and took these suspected kidnappers and, you know, hung them right. from a the tree. Yeah. So, <laughs> which yeah, is yeah. crazy. Turned into a, yeah. Yeah. Well, 
you know, turned into a lynch mob. I mean, lynch mobs are a not uncommon part of our history, as we know. Did you ever see uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey? Yes. 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 It's been a while, but yes. So, well, as you may remember, you know, it begins... Um, with these these primates, these ape-like proto-humans who discover weapons, and and you know, it, and it shows what is presumably the first murder. You know, one primate killing another with his bone, and then he throws the bone up into the air. And there's this famous kind of jump cut. He throws the bone up into the air, and then you know, it cuts to a spaceship, mm-hmm. uh, and. To me, that kind of encapsulates something true, which is, you know, technologically we've advanced in the blink of an eye, you know, but we're still on some level, you know, these killer apes. So, um, you know, for most of us, again, and and again, you have to ask, why is 99.9% of all popular culture, not just video games, but movies and TV shows and popular novels, you know, so steeped in sex and violence, you know, it's feeding something that is, you know, an aspect of human nature, the shadow side, as Jungian psychologists call it. Right. Uh, you know, and it, it serves as kind of an outlet for some of those impulses, which, you know, impulses which under the right circumstances is the Brookhart, you know, kidnapping thing makes clear, can manifest themselves in, in actual horrible ways. I mean, the world provides all too many examples. You know, Freud said, quoted a famous Latin quote, which translate man as wolf to man. Um, and, you know, it, it, we've seen all the time all over the world, you know, sometimes it doesn't take all that much to turn, you know, neighbors against each other. So... One of the last ones I just want to bring up is, you know, not all of the movies that you talk about are from that far back. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's mm-hmm. like all the way, all the way up to, I think the the nineties or maybe even in further than that. But one of the ones I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people may remember because I think it was uh, pretty well known um, was Badlands. Um, and that's mm-hmm. a, yeah. that's a crime that I know a lot of people know about, which is the Charles Starkweather, Carol Fugate, right. you know, kind of crime yeah. spree in the 1950s, I believe. Right. In yes. Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that movie actually came out in the 70s. So, you know, 20, 20 years later, we're still talking about mm-hmm. Starkweather um, and his crimes, mm-hmm. which I thought was... And it, right. it's one of those movies, I think, that still holds up. It's a beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just... Well, I obviously was watching all the movies in the book, but there was also an earlier film, a very low-budget movie, that was inspired by the Starkweather Fugate case called The Sadist that I talked about which is definitely worth seeing. I mean, it's, you know, it's really a grueling movie. What's basically about this young sadistic couple. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's like a total psycho who hold uh, three high school teachers, you know, who basically set upon three high school teachers. It's much more brutal. You know, the Terrence Malick movie, which sticks very close to the facts in many ways, but it's, it's so beautifully made. It's mm-hmm. so aestheticized. It digs into the characters, but it doesn't capture, in a way, the horror of uh, that crime spree, in a way, as much as this low-budget film does, the sadist. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because yeah, I was going to say that, you know, to even, I think even now people will talk about, you know, Starkweather and Fugate, and it's kind of like romanticized a lot, 
Um, and when you really, you know, research what, what happened there, I mean, it's brutal. I mean, it's really, oh, yeah. really brutal. Even the movie Badlands is a little bit of that, I think, um, in a way, mm-hmm. um, like you said, because it's not really showing you the detail of that. But it is still, it's still a good movie. I mean, it's still really... Oh, it's uh, a great movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a great movie. So one question about that that I have to ask you, because it's still debated as to how much... Carol Fugate took part in that crime spree, including, of course, mm-hmm. we know the murder of her family. So what was your verdict of, you know, looking into this case? Did you feel like she was, mm-hmm. you know, she was what, 14, 15 years old. Um, yeah, yeah. She was the younger girlfriend of Charles Starkweather and uh, the yeah. crime started with her family and then went from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't have any firm opinions about how many times she pulled the trigger, but she was definitely involved. She must have known, for example, that Starkweather had killed her whole family because, you know, they were holed up in her house for days. Mm-hmm. There's a phenomenon that I've written about um, in psychology called folie à deux. I mean, folie à deux has a very specific meaning. It means madness shared by two. Um, and, it, it, you know, in its broader application, it's come to refer to these killer couples or killer pairs two people who individually, you know, might not be capable of committing these crimes, um, but, you know, put them together, you know, you got this very toxic combination. Right. So again, Leopold and Loeb or you know, the Smith. Columbine killers. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, there are many of them. I mean, Starkweather was a, had already committed murder, was a psycho, right. but I'm sure Caroline Fugate participated. I mean, she wasn't turning a blind eye to these things. Mm-hmm. And when he, he killed and, you know, that young couple, you know, again, who knows, but I'm sure she is not this helpless captive yeah. uh, as she tried to portray herself to be. So. Right. Mm-hmm. So more to it than maybe people remember. I don't want to give everything away <laughs> about the book because mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's, it's a really fun read. I mean, I mean, we're talking about movies. So of course, that's always fun, you know, and then mm-hmm. you, get to, you get to look at it, you know, from the true crime angle of it and get some of those details, which is really interesting. So what I want to just end to just to say by letting everybody know how they can find um, the new book, Rip from the Headlines. It's Rip from the Headlines, The Shocking True Stories behind the movie's most memorable crimes? Well, you know, I don't know, um, given, you know, the particular state of things, uh, even how many bookstores are open now, but obviously uh, Amazon, I mean, that's where I get my copies. Um, It's available hardcover, paperback, and Kindle. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, that would, particularly in our quarantine times, be the easiest way to get it. Okay. And I would also uh, recommend if people want to look at all the books that you have available to go to your website, which I believe is haroldschechter.com. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah, haroldschechter.com. And I'll, I'll have links in the, in the show notes. I was in there just the last couple of days and I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that there was so many. And then you have, are they like shorter ones? I just saw those. I think it said yeah. mm-hmm. Am- Amazon yeah, something. Those, yeah, they're, they're called Amazon Original Stories. Okay. Uh, and there are six of them that compose this uh, collection called Bloodlands, which you can get the whole series or you can buy them individually. One is uh, called Little Slaughterhouse on the Prairie, um, which is about the Bender family of Kansas. Uh, can't even remember all of them. There's one on um, 
called Rampage about Howard Unruh, who is clearly considered to be the first modern mass murderer. That was the uh, one that I wanted to read first. (laughs) That's the one, because that that Um, one is a really interesting story that not a lot of people know about that one. Um, Yeah, yeah, no, fascinating story. Yeah, I covered that on my podcast, but it's been like two or three years ago. But it was the first time I had heard of it. So when I saw that one, I'm like, I'm definitely picking that one up. I want to read yeah. all the details. Well, one of them actually kind of relates to what we've been talking about. There's one called The Pied Piper um, about this guy, Charles Schmidt, who was a teenage psycho killer in Tulsa, I want to say. Now I can't exactly remember. But in any case, uh, his story served as the basis for a very, very famous Joyce Carol Oates short story called Where You're Going, Where Have You Been? Mm-hmm. Um, so, that. you know, that's another, yeah, another example of, you know, how authors, uh, will sometimes use true crime cases to, uh, as a basis for their fiction. So there are six of those, so they run about 50, 70 pages or something like that. So yes, people can feel, feel accomplished to read a whole book in a day. So <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. I'm, I'm really excited about the book. Uh, I've gone through the whole thing, but I need to go back and reread some because, I'm starting to make a list of like the movies that I need to watch or rewatch, mm-hmm. you know, along with them. Cause I think that, that will make it um, even more interesting, more fun to do. Oh, so yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Thanks thank for having you. Me on. Thank you. I appreciate okay. it. That will do it for this episode of once upon a crime. I want to thank my guest. Once again, author Harold Schechter. I had a lot of fun talking with him. The book, once again, is titled Rip from the Headlines, The Shocking True Stories Behind the Movie's Most Memorable Crimes. You'll find chapters on some other cases I've covered in the past on Once Upon a Crime in Harold's book, including the Jesse James Hollywood case that inspired the movie Alpha Dog, and as we mentioned, the Charles Starkweather murder spree that inspired Badlands, and the so-called Lonely Hearts killers Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez. The movie inspired by that killer couple was The Honeymoon Killers. I've included a link in the show notes to Harold Schechter's website where you can find out about more of his books and purchase them as well. Thanks again for joining me. I'll be back on Monday with the last chapter of Stranger Than Fiction, and I hope you'll join me then. Until next time, be good to one another.